This episode of The Vincast is proudly supported by Sheba, Australia's first and only active all-female rideshare service getting women and children where they need to go. You can use Sheba in Melbourne, Geelong, Sydney, Brisbane, Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast and it will be available in Perth, Darwin and Adelaide soon. On episode 127 of The Vincast, I chat with Ben Rankin, Chief Winemaker for Galley Estate and also owner of Willamy Vineyard in Macedon. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And as I mentioned on the last episode of the podcast, I'm super excited to be co-hosting the first ever uh, live uh, edition of the podcast on the 5th of December here in Melbourne. Uh, I'm going to be co-hosting that with a uh, fellow podcaster, uh, Nevena Spirovska, who hosts a podcast called Quickie, uh, and we are both part of the Earbuds Network, the, uh, the awesome Melbourne podcast network, uh, and uh, we are going to be chatting about uh, grape variety. So the topic that I've uh, selected uh, is what are the, in inverted commas, right grape varieties for Australian wine? And uh, along with Nevin and I will be former podcast guest uh, Dan Buckle, who is chief winemaker at Shandon Australia and also makes some wines under his own brand, Circe Wines. Uh, and also the, uh, the the podcast guest for this episode, Ben Rankin. Uh, ben has been for many years the uh, chief winemaker for Galley Estate. Uh, they have a, a winery and also a vineyard in Sunbury and then also another vineyard in Heathcote where they grow uh, – quite a lot of uh, alternative varieties, Italian and Spanish, uh, and I thought uh, the two of them would uh, make for really interesting uh, guests uh, to uh, have a discussion about uh, what are the right varieties in Australia. So I'm super excited. Please do head to the Earbuds Facebook page or to the Intrepid Wino Facebook page. There is a link to the event uh, and you can secure some tickets. Uh, they're really, really um, cheap, I think, for, uh, for the event, $30, uh, which includes a tasting of some wines as well. Uh, and it's going to be held at Noisy Ritual, where uh, which is owned by another former guest of the podcast, Alex Byrne. Uh, it's also where I made my first wine. Uh, so please do check it out and hope to see you there. I'm looking forward to uh, possibly meeting a lot of you in person. But uh, yeah, as I mentioned, this week's episode is with Ben Rankin. Uh, it was great to catch up with him a little while ago. I did also um, have an opportunity to taste some Galley Estate wine, so do head to my YouTube channel uh, and check out the Let's Taste videos there. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. Ben, thank you very much for making some time to be on the Vincast. It's great to, to sit down and chat with you. Uh, welcome on the show. Thanks, James. Thank you. I start every episode by asking my guests if they can remember if there was a certain event in their life that made them think about wine in a different way and possibly set them on the path or was it a, a, a gradual thing where uh, you sort of thought, oh, wine, that would be an interesting career path? Oh, right. A good question. Um, I haven't thought about that. Uh, I guess... 
I grew up on a vineyard, so um, whereabouts was that? Uh, Tumbarumba in southern New South Wales. Oh, okay, yeah. So good um, chardonnay. Yeah, you bet. Well, that was uh, mum and dad were one of the first to, to plant a vineyard there. I think it was eighty four. Wow, thereabouts. Um, so I guess um, I was immersed uh, in in viticulture in particular, not so much winemaking. Okay, um, but it was also a side project for my parents uh, on the farm. Um, so they were they from that area, and they decided to plant a vineyard, or did they move there to plant a vineyard? No, 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 no. We um, they moved there when I was a couple of years old to um, uh, be sheep farmers. Okay, uh, and then um, about six, seven years later, they uh, planted a vineyard, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they were always interested in. They're actually foresters, um, horticulturalists, so they're always interested in planting trees. So a vineyard was obviously um, pretty easy, and considering. Um, uh, someone had done it the year before. Um, that was the first vineyard, Ian Cow in Tumba. Um, they went into it, all guns blazing. Yep. And um, so, yeah, I, I grew up on a vineyard in the sense of um, you know helping them plant the vines, put the irrigation in the posts, the whole lot. Wow. Um, and then uh, they expanded that later on in the probably early 90s and I was at boarding school, so my school holidays, summer, Winter, the whole lot was always in the vineyard helping with pruning or harvesting or um, some sort of irrigation work. There's always irrigation work to be done. Did you so, enjoy um, that or was that kind of a – No, I loved it. I, okay. I, loved, I loved the physical labour. Great. Um, you know, being a young bloke, of course, you know, fit when you're playing footy and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Any sort of physical labour was great. Sure. Keep you fit and active and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, there's obviously an element of mum and dad, you know, Saying, hey, you've got to earn your keep here for the holidays, go out and, um, you know, help in the vineyard or, yep. or what have you. And there's also other stuff on the farm as well, fixing fences and what have you. So I guess um, going back to your question, I was probably immersed in viticulture and was more interested in the viticulture to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, did, did you have any um, ideas about what you wanted to do, like when you finished school or like what you, whether you went to study or did you have an idea that maybe wine might have been a, a career path? Um, no, wine didn't come along for a few more years later. Okay. Um, I, um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do after school. Um, it was all I knew was I wanted to be part outdoors and part indoors. That was my only prerequisite. So I remember going through the, um, the university, you know, logbook or whatever you want to call it to find out what, you know, um, uh, jobs I should, you know, try and enrol in for a, a university path. Right. And I ended up uh, enrolling in surveying and cartography. Yeah, okay. Um, at Makes RMIT. sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. so cause I knew there was a bit of both, indoors, outdoors. Yep. Um, and that was interesting, um, but I think life in Melbourne – uh, it was more fun. <laughs> sure. So w- um, was that part of the reason you kind of wanted to, to go and live in the in the big city? Where were, um, you, where were you going to boarding school? Oh, I went to school in Geelong. Right, so, okay. Um, yes, yeah, so it was a five-hour drive from mum and dad. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, obviously holidays were pretty important at home. But um, so, yeah, obviously Melbourne was, was an obvious choice, obviously. Um, and so at RMIT, I took a gap year, travelled around and what have you, and actually worked on a lot of vineyards actually um, in my gap year before university. Um, and travelling up the east coast of Australia as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, surveying was um, was interesting because, you know, it was obviously that outdoors facet. Yep. Um, but, you know, the beer drinking life of a university student in Melbourne <laughs> took over. And so I did that for three years and that was fun. And then um, uh, I actually failed two years in a row because um, my social life overtook my university life. So <laughs> Sounds familiar. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of people like that who had a great time. Um but, uh, yeah, so then I thought, well, what am I going to do? So um, uh, that's when uh, viticulture came on the radar mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and 
I looked at applying to Charles Sturt. Uh, this would have been late 90s, mid to late 90s. Um, and on the application forms to apply for viticulture or winemaking, um, the higher, the, the harder entrance score was vitic- oh, sorry, was winemaking. So I put that first and viticulture second, expecting to get into viticulture. And I was accepted into winemaking. And I'm like, shit, right, let's give this a go. So, wow. um, so yeah, so I sort of went into winemaking, not really knowing much about it, but knowing more about the viticulture. Do you think that that potentially helped you as far as the studies and then, you know, working as a winemaker, having spent time working in vineyards and, and, to, mm, to, to say, growing up in them because I, I would imagine that uh, there would be a lot of people who have experience in neither who go and study winemaking and it's sort of like learning backwards whereas you kind mm. of already had that experience of understanding what goes into the actual growing of the grapes to then kind of go, okay, so now we start from yeah. from here and this is what we end up with. Yeah, that's, that's, that's spot on. Um because uh, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people forget that winemaking is is farming. Yeah, you know, we're in the farming agricultural industry. Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, and you can't make good wine out of bad grapes. So the viticulture is number one. So sure. we're farmers essentially. And sure. Growing up on a farm, that was obviously what I loved, um, but didn't really know it until I got into it, so to speak. Um, but yeah, so there was good grounding having viticulture background, and I found all those subjects at university studying winemaking because there's a crossover of the two viticulture and winemaking in the winemaking course yeah so studying the viticultural subjects was water off a duck's back for me i found that really easily easy and interesting mm-hmm. uh and then the challenge was the science of the winemaking part for sure. me because i was more interested in the biology and the f- plant physiology and vineyards rather than the chemistry and the so forth yeah so my challenge was more that chemistry scientific background for for winemaking absolutely um but, but, but at the end of the day that's just to get a piece of paper to say you're a winemaker right <laughs> you would have had the, a bit of a leg up though you know compared to some of your fellow students because mm, yeah um you've got kind of the vineyard stuff mm. the viticulture yeah there was a few pat, of us you know, so you could you know, focus you grow, a lot more on the area that you were less experienced yeah. in yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely, mate. Definitely. And there's a few of us in our in our class who are, you know, obviously from winemaking or, or grape growing backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, who've gone, who are still in the industry today. Yeah. Um, to get that, but they, they were there but, to get yeah. that qualification and get a exactly much, right. much. But they already stronger. had the grounding as well, so yeah. we were always stronger than a lot of the other students. Sure. Although in saying that, there were uh, there were students who came through from scientific backgrounds. You know, they might have done engineering or or science degrees p- beforehand, so they found the winemaking part more easy than the the viticultural part. So to speak, because yeah. their grounding was more scientific. So, well, I like um, when know, I when I was different when I went to uh, the University of Adelaide and did the masters mm. in wine business. By that point, I'd already, I'd already been working for mm. a winery, and you know, particularly in marketing. So mm. the marketing elements of of the degree weren't as difficult for me, but I had to work a lot harder on the the mm. financial and the vidi winemaking side of mm. things. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it didn't really click for me. Winemaking didn't really click for me until I got out of university and, and you know, did your last year by – or last two years by correspondence. Um, so you were working in a winery? Yeah, I went down to Debortley's in the Yarra. Right, okay. Um, and that's where I sort of started my first uh, winemaking journey. And that's when it all clicked. It was like, oh, geez, I should have done this you know, years beforehand because the, the winemaking made so much more sense mm-hmm. when you put it into theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put it into practice rather than theory at university. So that's when it all clicked. Um, so, you know, that, that experience is, is 
number one, obviously. Um, and working at De in there, I rather, I mean, what an amazing oh, team great. that would have been. And and <laughs> yeah. you know, you would have been working with some people who have oh. since gone on to to do amazing things as well. We had an amazing group of people back then. Um, that would have been. I think 2001 was my first vintage. So um, Bill Downey there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was um, we had a great crew. We had um, obviously Steve Webber, David Slingsby, Sif, who's since passed away, and and Dave Bicknell from Oak Ridge. Right. Were our three um, winemakers, I suppose. Yep. Uh, and then as cellar hands, um, yeah, we had Bill Downey, Paul Bridgman, who's yeah. now at Levertine. Um, Glenn Thompson, who's now at DC. Yep, I used to work with um, him. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yep. Uh, obviously, Sarah Fagan, who's still there. Um, uh, Anthony Brain, who's now Livewire in the Bellarine. Yeah, right. Um, we have, oh, gee, who else is there? I'm sure I'm missing a couple. Oh, sorry, Adam McCallum, who's now a winemaker at Tarawara. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, we had a great, great crew and great people. They were awesome. Um, and uh, it was the best grounding to start a winemaking career. Um, yeah, certainly, you know, it was all about work ethic at DeBortley's in those days. Um, you know, we had 5,000 barrels on stillage, you know. Um, you had to plumb bob all your stillage and get it perfectly straight, you know, 110 barrels per row, four high. Um, so um, Discipline. Was, <laughs> discipline, right. <laughs> and it was, it was phenomenal. It was great fun. You know, we worked bloody hard, yep. but it was, it was fantastic. You know, um, what we got out of it, you know, the, the play, play hard, work hard was, you know, it was brilliant. We had a great time. So. Yeah. How, how long did you end up working there? Uh, I did four, four vintages, um, three years full time, um, and then they helped me with my first um, stint uh, overseas from there on. Right. So, where, um, where was that? Uh, fortunately enough, Burgundy okay. um, in 2003. Good place to start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was probably too good a place to start. I wish I know what I know now, you know, um, compared to what I knew then. 2003 um, vintage. Yeah, so the hot one. Ooh, the hot one. Challenging. Yeah, it was. It was hot. For Burgundy in particular, it would have been challenging. Yeah, it was. Um, I think um, uh, it's been one of the hottest in record, 03, for mm. them. Um, but yeah, I flew into Paris mid-August and I was expecting to have a fortnight in Paris, you know, Find your feet. First time I ever travelled too, by the way. Yeah. And then I, I got the um, email saying, "Get the f down here." Yeah, we started picking yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, crikey. Right. <laughs> but it was brilliant. It was great, and I, I did three months there, so it wasn't just harvest; it was also post. Um, and uh, I was really fortunate, and you know, and and I probably did three or four vintages um, in Europe. My first three or four vintages in Europe were all sort of, you know, for free. You just get paid your, yeah, your board and yep. yeah exactly right and you know and it's the best way to go and then you get a couple of bottles of wine on your way um but um it was it makes you appreciate you know um uh, how hard you work for you know what your earnings or what you can get for that money sure uh for the next stage of your winemaking career particularly um when you're obviously it's easier when you're young and single you know um and uh, and obviously the travel, you know, after that you know the contacts that you have from working at those wineries and they say hey go and visit X, you know, X, Y, and Z in whatever regions of France or Italy or Spain. So, and that's what you go and do after vintage. You go and travel and, and visit those wineries who you've been recommended to go and see where, and learn more. Where were some of the other places you did vintage in Europe? Oh, blimey. I've done about eight, eight nine years there, just swapping hemispheres. Um, uh, so, yeah, obviously Burgundy 03, um, Pix and Lou, so down near Montpellier uh-huh. in 04. I uh, did a year in America in the Finger Lakes. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, up in upstate New York. Where, where did um, you do that? Oh, on Lake Kuka, at Dr. Constantine Frank. I've been there. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, he was yeah. the first guy to bring in uh, vinifera 
grapes mm-hmm. to America. Mm-hmm. Um, very successful, so great reason. Um, and then uh, down to Minervois, uh, Gayak. Um, right. I did a, a fair, fair stint on the right bank a couple of years in uh, Pomerol Saint-Emilion. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very fortunate. Shadow Lafleur, one of my great friends in Pomerol, been very fortunate to um, uh, learn a lot off those guys. And then also Loire from uh, Terrain, Puy Fume and uh, Samua. So, mm-hmm. um, so hence Shannon and Cab Franc, uh, more Cab Franc Rosé. But um, uh, from those guys. So, yeah, so it's sort of been about a bit. Um, and then um, been fortunate enough to then slide down to, to Chianti, not for vintage but post-vintage and um, at Isolina um, and experience that. Um, and that was fantastic. Uh, but that was only like you know, a two or three weeks stint afterwards. Were, were you um, like me? Did you find it incredibly difficult to find that winery? Because I got lost. <laughs> I was with a Frenchman. <laughs> so, Lucky. Um, yeah, uh, we, we were fine. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was an amazing place. Yeah, it that is. Was, that was incredible. All the white buildings. Yeah, exactly oh, right. Yeah, so, gorgeous. Uh, my lasting memory of Isolina was um, where the uh, um, where the cellar hands or, you know, um, work experience guys lived. Had this great big um, fireplace, and the mantelpiece was this big old piece of timber. It was about ten inches deep. Wow! And um, there was all these chalk marks on it, you know, like um, numbers, as if you've been in prison for how many days. <laughs> and I asked the boys, "What's all that about?" And they were like, um, "That's how many Riedel glasses we've smashed." During the <laughs> 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 Never forget it for some reason. <laughs> so. Um, Past uh, De Bordeaux back here in Australia, what yep. was the what was the next step in the career? Um, oh, well, the the last vintage De Bordeaux went up to um, the Hunter at Margans, um, and then came back to De Bordeaux um, in the 04 vintage. So it was um, in uh, in Hunter. Then, um, as I said, it was a year in America. So then after that was 06, I think it was down in Tassie um, when uh, at um, Tamar Ridge, just when Guns took over. So mm-hmm. Andrew Peary came on board and wow. and um, so I worked with him. And I was a night shift winemaker. Um, so um, that was really that was a great time. Um, and then what was really interesting was after that vintage, um, Andrew was. Um, Taking had taken over a little place called Rosevears, which I don't think exists anymore. Um, but he had a lot of contract winemaking there and was able to fin- finish off a lot of the wines there until going back to Europe, so in about um, August. Um, yeah, then, um, uh, um, yeah, then coming back um, when I was in France, I was um, uh, then had the job opportunity um, to come here to Galley. That was 2007 was my first vintage right. um, here at Galley. So um, here I've been since. But spent another two years at Galley flicking between hemispheres. What was uh, what was the Galley story uh, up till that point when you started? Um, the Galley story um, really was all about opportunity. Um, you know, it's only uh, – it's one of the closest wineries to the CBD of Melbourne. Yeah. So um, I was in – Bordeaux at the time, and I remember applying for the job, and and also a, a job in the Barossa actually, and I got both jobs, just as a vintage winemaker, and I'm like, which one do I take? And Galley, Galley was easy because you know having lived in Melbourne before when I was at RMIT, yeah, all my friends and so forth were here, so an opportunity to come back to Melbourne because I hadn't lived in a big city in ten years, so um, so it was great to uh, so Galley was an easy one, and then after that it was um, uh, fortunate enough that they wanted to keep me on, 
um, and I was still able to, to fly between hemispheres for a couple of years. Yep. Uh, and then um, at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, um, a full-time job came available and the, um, the previous winemaker to me uh, left and I took his job. So, Opportunity in de- indeed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, indeed. It's, life's about opportunity at the end of the day. So I'm um, very lucky. Yep. Yeah. And, and Gally at that point had already um, had like heavy, heavy investment in terms of alternative, particularly Italian yeah. varieties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. That, and they had the Heathkit vineyard already at that point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were all planted. Um, uh, the Sunbury vineyard was planted in 97 and the Heathkit 01, 2001 that is. So, yeah, um, well and surely invested in, in uh, um, Mediterranean varieties in particular. Yeah. Um, so that was um, – so obviously doing a couple of vineyards here, developing a, um, uh, an understanding of Italian or Mediterranean varieties was great to have that. Um, grounding mm-hmm. um, because previously it was really more cool climate orientated traditional French varietals. Sure, um, and certainly you know the the, the travels, mm, be yeah. it in Australia, in you know the Finger Lakes, in mm. Europe, certainly reflected that a lot more time in France, for example. Yeah, yeah exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. So was, um, was, that, was that a difficult transition? To, to to have a bit more focus on the Mediterranean varieties? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. Um, uh, the Mediterranean varieties, no, it wasn't too hard actually. Um, I, I thought it may well have been. Um, I suppose the most challenging would be Nebbiolo, um, but um, no, no, it wasn't too much. It wasn't too hard at all actually. Uh, did you did you have uh, an interest in Italian varieties, Italian wines up to that point? No, not until I moved here, to be honest, to be right. totally frank. No, not until I moved here. I didn't realise, um, you know, how great, you know, Nebbiolo from Barolo or Barbaresco is or how great. Um, I knew how good Sange was from, from Tuscany, obviously being in there um, in 2003. Um, but I didn't realise, you know, and obviously now that they're, they're all the rage and they're all very expensive and, you know, 10 years ago they were far more accessible and easily drunk. Mm. But um, no, I didn't, I didn't really realise um, how iconic those varieties were and or would become. Um, uh, not like, you know, all the focus, my grounding was all about, you know, lived with Bill Downey for Christ's sake. So, you know, he was all about Pinot. So all we drank was Grand Cru Pinot at the Bortz all the time. And all was, we drank was Grand Cru yeah. Pinot. <laughs> well, all we ate was pasta. You're we couldn't gonna, afford you, anything I'm else. I'm sorry. You're going <laughs> to upset some listeners of the podcast saying stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, you could afford it in those days. Eh? <laughs> I, ha- I have had uh, guests, uh, previous guests who've been in, in, in the game for a lot longer uh, talking about, oh, back in the day, you know, we could get Romani Conti for yeah. a couple of hundred bucks. And it's like, Fine. are you serious? <laughs> If only. <laughs> we, we can't even get it, let alone afford it. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. It's amazing how things have changed. But um, uh, so, yeah, that, that influence, I suppose that Debortley influence um, of particularly, you know, um, Burgundy was um, uh, sort of, um, yeah, I always go back to, I guess. Um, but, hey, if you can make Pinot Noir, which is one of the hardest grapes to make, um, the others, you know, should flow. Sure. Mm. Sincerest apologies for interrupting another fascinating Vincast chat, but I wanted to mention the supporter of this episode of the podcast. So I'm speaking exclusively to the female listeners of the podcast who might happen to be at a wine event, a dinner or something like that in the city and uh, looking at a way to get home. Why not consider the new Australian Sheba app, which has been set up by women for women? Sheba is a safe and convenient form of transportation for female-only passengers, uh, which makes you feel more comfortable because not only are all the the drivers females themselves, but they also take home 85% of the revenue. 
So I highly recommend checking out the app and finding out if Sheba is available in your area. Get started with Sheba today. Visit the App Store or the Google Play Store to download the Sheba app and get riding in minutes. When you ride with Sheba, you're getting where you need to go and connecting with a ride-sharing community full of exceptional Australian women. Download the app today. So um, how did you go about kind of looking at the Italian varieties and and finding references and thinking about because at that time there really wasn't a lot Mm. of mine made in Australia. It was still vines were being planted perhaps. Yeah, exactly right. Um, And and they were reaching maturity, but there weren't a lot of people working with them. Did you kind of uh, find opportunities to talk with people who were sort of pioneering with them in Australia? Um, Yeah, we did actually. There's two two facets to that. Um, uh, Number one, you know, I found that, a lot of, you know, particularly Sangiovese, which is probably the most widely planted Italian grape varietal 10 years ago. I'm, I'm not sure if it still is or not. But, you know, a lot of Australian if it, winemakers... If you don't include Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris in Oh, there. you might be right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, a lot of winemakers are making, you know, Sange like Shiraz. Yeah. Um, and, and it quite clearly isn't. Um, and blending as well. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Um, so... Um, Luckily enough, in I think it was two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine, um, my my boss Pam Galley came up with an idea to um, uh, represent her late husband Lorenzo for a scholarship in Italian wines, um, and so it's called the Lorenzo Galley Scholarship. Yeah. Um, so some of your viewers may have heard of it before, but it's basically uh, a masterclass um, learning about you know and benchmarking between Australia and obviously great Italian wines yep. of the same variety yep. um, and learning about and teaching sommeliers, winemakers, viticulturalists about, you know, what are the benchmarks of Italy and why they're benchmarks um, and then what's happening in Australia as well and what's what's exciting about Australia, with particularly Italian varietals. Mm. Um, so through that masterclass, um, I've, I've learned a phenomenal amount about Italian varieties. And when you have people like, um, you know, Mark Walpole, who's one of the, you know, I think one of the greatest um, uh, viticulturalists in Australia. Uh, and, um, and he was uh, awarded as such just yeah, recently. and that was brilliant. Um, Someone I've been time. pestering to get on the show for a long time, <laughs> but he's, uh, he's, a, he's a bit of a shy, right, uh, shy yeah. fellow. Well, he's amazing. When you do get him, he, um, he is an extraordinary wealth of knowledge with uh, – um, particularly Italian varieties, but viticulture in general is, is fantastic. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, having people like him on the panel to talk about um, Italian varieties from a viticultural point of view. Sure. Um, and then um, having some winemakers. So I remember in the first years of the scholarship, we had um, blokes like Matt Gant from First Drop over in South Australia. Yep. Um, he was doing, you know, uh, uh, he was championing a lot in those days. Obviously, the Chalmers um, and Pizzini's would come in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, the Pizzini's um, represented a fantastic flight of different clones of um of uh nebbiolo um out of barrel for uh, uh you know one of the one of the um the sessions in the master class mm-hmm. so um you know and then just the things like learning about you know the differences between traditional and uh um more modern winemaking methods with, with nebbiolo in piemonte which was quite a big conversation about five to ten years ago um uh, and, and across the board, you learn so much from from the scholarship in, in benchmarking, um, you know, these Italian wines. So, um, so I guess that's had a very big influence on on what we do here at Galley or what I've been doing with um, our Italian varietals. Um, and then, second to that, um, there's a uh, a Pinot Massive. Um, I'm not sure if you if you know of it with um, Victorian Pinot producers meeting up once a year. Mm-hmm. 
um, and, and showing their wares in um, their barrel samples. Okay. And talking about Pinot, but it's Pinot specifically. But it still applies to a lot of other – applies to winemaking in general with what people are doing with, um, you know, uh, techniques or problem solving or um, thinking outside the square – and that can lead into other interesting ideas and thinking outside the square for making, you know, Fiano or Montepulciano or, or whatever other variety there is. So, um, so that's been really great too. That networking and 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 talking about you know wine mm. um, and wine making ideas. So, so mm. would you say that a really important part of the <clears throat> the the growth, the development of Mediterranean varieties, in particular in Australia, uh, mm. couldn't have happened without um, a lot of people kind of working with them and mm. collaborating to a certain extent, a community around them as far as the, the, the growers and the winemakers uh, and then having people travelling mm. in Europe and, and having a reference point for those wines in Italy uh, in terms of journalists and sommeliers and then for, at the end, the consumers to have an interest in those varieties. Do you think that, that it wouldn't have it grown to what it is now Mm. Without all of those things kind of working, uh, oh, in, in, you know, together. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think. Um, I mean, obviously, you go back to the the the, the nurseries who are bringing in those great varieties and that, those guys championing, um, you know, these new varieties into Australia, and that collaboration. But it's also timing. I think timing has a massive part in it, in the sense that um, opportunity. Well, exactly right. And everyone now, particularly cafes, restaurants and bars, um, want something different. You know, sure. They, they want to have a Separavi or they want to have a, you know, a Nero d'Avola or Alianico or something or other, something a little Tempr- bit different. Tempranillo. Yeah, Tempranillo, yep. Sangiovese, Fiano, Montepulciano, et cetera. Um, so from stemming from that, timing played a big part in that. Um, but also, you know, um, us as Australian winemakers and viticulturalists, um, uh, have learned a lot about how to make it as well and we are making it better as a group as an industry the, the wines have never been better do you, do you think that um, to a certain extent um, the Italian uh, varieties were also grown like varieties that were a lot mm. more planted in Australia so like Sangiovese yeah. was grown like Shiraz as well yeah I think there's an element of that for sure um, and and you know, you walk into the vineyard and look at Sangiovese and it's quite a, a spindly variety. Yep. So, you know, it's not – it doesn't look as healthy and as lush as mm. the French varieties. Mm. And so to an untrained eye, someone might walk in and go, hey, that looks a bit sick. Yep. But it's Sangiovese. That's the way it always looks. Sure. Um, and then also a lot of the – in the early days, um, a lot of the clones of those varieties that came in were selected on on volume right. to produce massive volume as well. Yeah. So the new clones that have come in the last 10 or 15 years are more selected on quality. Just so, to a certain extent, that would have been the priority in Italy at the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, th- these clones that were selected on quantity came through UC Davis in, in America. Oh, right. Um, okay. So they're all about you know volume, volume, volume. Mm. So um, we have one of those clones, for example, in Sangiovese. Um, it's called the H6V9 clone, and it produces massive volumes, crops, 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 like no tomorrow. So um, viticulturally, we have to walk through the vineyard at least three times and dropping fruit, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, prior to and on Veraison to try and get that balance and then better concentration within that fruit. Yep. So whereas with Shiraz or with Cabernet, you wouldn't have to do that three or four times. You'd probably have to do it once. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, viticulturally they're quite different as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
So as far as um, you taking on the, the winemaker position mm-hmm. and working across the, the Sunbury and the Heathgate Vineyard, mm-hmm. um, how did you sort of start to evolve um, the, the way that the galley wines looked um, over the, the past sort of mm. uh, 10 years? Yeah, um, well, first and foremost, um, uh, you try not to make drastic changes. Uh, you try to make an evolution mm-hmm. and, and tweak things and slowly move things in a direction. But, um, uh, I mean, put simply, my predecessor um, was very uh, corporate orientated, I suppose you'd say. So everything was inoculated, everything was stabilized, filtered, fined, etc. So it was pretty easy to change all that to mm. more natural winemaking techniques. Um, uh, but number one is always you know, balancing the vineyard first and foremost. Um, and then when it comes into the winery, um, really we started tweaking with obviously uh, like last year everything was 100% uh, wild ferment, natural malos. Um, all our premium wines are, are, are non-stabilised uh, or filtered uh, or fined. It's just racked on a new moon. I go according to the moon with our Adelaide wines um, and have been doing so for about six or seven years. Um, I don't believe in fining. Um, fining's been a big one, big big one of mine, um, because uh, from a winemaking point of view, if you have to fine the wine, i.e., to take out bitterness or astringency or, or you know, some problem in the wine, then you need to look at where did that come from? What 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 winemaking techniques brought that on? Was it because you you know you macerated the fruit for too long or you, you pumped over or plunged the, the wines for too long or too much and you worked it too hard and therefore you got that bitterness or you pressed it too hard? Or what was that reasoning that you have to find? So um, to avoid that, you need to look at your practices and how you make the wine in the first place during the, the vintage. Yep. So, um, so, yeah, so you learn from that. Um, in about how to you know respect certain varieties in certain ways. You know, Tempranillo is very different to, to Nebbiolo, for example, um, uh, in the way you macerate the fruit and and, and you know extract that colour and tannin from from the fruit. So because um, you don't want to come back to that wine and and find it later on before bottling, you know, adding a bit of egg white or whatever it may be. So um, and then also I'm a big believer in in recently changing um, uh, the. The thought process with red wines on, with respect to pH, acidity, um, I think you can have um, quite um, low acidities, high pHs and still have good wines um, where the school of thought from university was, you know, you have to have you know, low pH, high acid to get your good sulfurs, et cetera, et cetera, and mm-hmm. have stable, clean wines. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that's a misnomer as well. Mm. So um, I've been changing that. Um, I mean, but also- like if, as far as the wines from Italy, they probably don't do a lot of analysis. <laughs> Obviously, they have a lot more experience and mm. they know exactly what they want, well, not exactly, but they have an idea about what they're going to get. Mm. So they're, they're just sort of going on sensory perception rather than yeah, looking exactly at right. numbers. If it tastes good, then why add something or, or do something to the wine if you're happy with it where it is, regardless yeah. what the numbers are. Yeah. And that's that's probably my argument there. If it tastes good, then hello, it tastes good. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, it's interesting because I make wine for about 10 or so clients and and, and they have different, obviously, uh, objectives and, and having that conversation with them is quite challenging sometimes. Yeah. But it's um, it's good to be challenged, you know. Um, so I'm trying to do that all the time. The other great thing too is I have um, – a fantastic winemaker working with me, Kirillie Gordon, and um, so as a female, having a female palate and a female touch in the cellar, 
Um, not just the way you do things, but the way you make wine has been fantastic too. So that's been another another really nice change in the last two years, having her in the winery. Hasn't it been scientifically proven that women are actually much better in terms of sensory I believe perception? So. Yeah, exactly right. I'll take that any day. <laughs> so it's good having her, um, and also you know it doesn't become so boisy in the winery, and, and from a cultural point of view as well, it's great having um, having her, and and she's fantastic. So. Mm. Um, so a lot of credit needs to go to her as well because, um, you know, we are a very small team, just the two of us, so it's great. Well, and one of the amazing things about Galley is that um, not only do you uh, is some of the fruit that you grow available for purchase but also mm. the winery is available to, to some <clears throat> clients as far as being able to make their wines there yep. um, and I, I would imagine <clears throat> that it's a really great opportunity to sort of chat with other people and, and look at, where the fruit mm. that, that you're working with for the for galley wines or for for clients, yep. um, and fruit that they're buying, looking at what they might be doing, is is that also a fantastic opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, definitely. to compare notes and and think about new techniques or mm. ways of of working with uh, with the fruit. Yeah, look, that, that's definitely, um, and and. One of the big things there is we're based in Sunbury and it's a very small wine region. You know, there's only about 10 or 12 wineries in this region. Sure. Um, and unlike, you know, the Yarra or the Barossa or Margaret River, you can't just walk into the local pub and have a chat to another winemaker as they do at the Hillsville Hotel and share lots of knowledge and talk to other winemakers about what's happening in the region. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have that. So the way I get that is by having you know, these other you know, 10 or so clients who are working at Galley in the winery with us. And you know, because um, we're working together, we have some of them are ex-sommeliers making wine. Some of them are ex-winemakers from other, other companies making their own brands, etc. Um, so, you know, over a bottle of wine at lunch, you know, always having a chat about, you know, what we're doing, what they're doing, what other people are doing. Um, likewise, while we taste ferments together, while we're doing our, um, while we're doing our rounds with Beaumets and so forth. So, um, yeah, that, that's really important sharing and, and you know, talking and finding about information about everyone's thoughts and ideas. Um, cause you can always take, you know, um, you know, maybe 1% or 2% or, or 50% of an idea, um, and give it a go. So a good example was in, um, 20, 2014, um, we had a, a big frost up at the Heathcote vineyard. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, we didn't get much fruit off that vineyard at all. Um, so we had, um, ex- ex- excess cellar hands here for the harvest cause we had a lot less fruit. And with the Sunbury Syrah, we um, were talking about it, and we we're like, "Well, let's do a bit of hand destemming." You know, no, no, no destemmer, no crusher, no, no machine. So hand picked, then painstakingly berry by berry, pulled off a bunch into a pungent. Um, and it took, you know, the cellar hands wanted to kill me, I think, because it took four of them all day to do one, one, one barrel. Um, and uh, and that wine's now one of our stables. You know, we do it every year now. Um, and it's been fantastic. So that wouldn't have come about if, if that vintage didn't happen. And also, you know, talking to the other guys about, you know, hey, at um, uh, Chateau Legay, I think it is, who do that in Pomerol. They, you know, individually take berry by berry. Well, they um, do it at um, La yeah, Postole in, the, in Chile. In, um, yeah, there's a few places that yeah. do it. Yeah, exactly right. So, But, you know, um, you can give Labor's a little bit cheaper in, yeah, it's uh, in other parts of the world. Eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, that's why we only do one pungent. <laughs> <laughs> Although this year we did three, I have to admit. So, um, uh, But, um, you know, um, I've got better, better – we've got better at doing it. So um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for example, uh, we've got a, a larger 
hole in the barrel. You know, it's three inches rather than a one inch hole. Yeah. And it's easier to feed the, the, the berries into the barrel, et cetera. So, mm. with that, um, the, the origin in terms of viticulture and working in the vineyard and having worked um, with <clears> Galley, has it been great to also have an opportunity to work more with the vineyard and, and sort of being there all year round and sort of looking at the different cycles that the vines go through? Yeah, well, um, I mean, here at Galley, we have uh, two vineyard managers because both vineyards are, are quite large. One's 100 acres, one's 200. So those guys really, you know, it's their own little domain, obviously, and I work closely with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, that you know, they're viticulturists, so we're obviously sharing information as well um, and ideas. But um, uh, from my own personal point of view, um, four years ago, uh, my wife and I bought a vineyard yeah. um, in the Macedon Ranges. And so now I've inadvertently become a viticulturalist myself, so mm. back to being uh, in the vineyard, um, in my spare time that is, on weekends and you know when I get home from work. Um, and I've, I've learnt so much. Um, you know it and every winemaker knows all the principles and we, we know you know what, what the viticulturists are doing. But when you're doing it yourself, you're, you're far more in touch with the vineyard, um, particularly when you're pruning yourself or you're, you're, you're shoot thinning or lifting wires or whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, you're walking down every row all the time looking at the fruit um, or the vines and, you know, assessing the health and what have you. And I get a consultant in to, to help as well because I don't know it all and I need someone else to oversee and, and, and get advice from. Well, like um, working in a, in a different region again, you know, Macedon, yeah, exactly is, right. it's a more elevated, cool climate region. Mm. So that must be, mm. uh, you know, quite challenging to kind of step into that to, to that vineyard with, a you know, again, a clean slate for as far as a, a regional climate kind of perspective. Yeah, well, it's so different to Sunbury and Heathcote, definitely. Um, so, you know, obviously, um, the, the, the two warmer climates, but some, I mean, uh, Macedon's, um, actually not dissimilar to Tumbarumba where I grew up. There you it's, go. um, it's, you know, it's one of, I think, I'm not sure what the debate is between the two regions of Macedon and Tumbarumba. They're the coolest mainland, um, regions on, on in Australia. So right. Tassie's the coldest in Australia. And then within mainland Australia, it's either Macedon or Tumbarumba. Yep. They're both neck and neck, I believe. So all three it, places great for Chardonnay. <laughs> Hello, yeah, exactly right. So um so um yeah, so anyway, but obviously my grounding's Tumbarumba, so I'm at cool climates, you know, um, no worries. So and my father's been fantastic too, and, and mum as well, um, right. in guidance and, and help in the vineyard too. Even do though they, been do they still have the vineyard? No, they sold it about fifteen years ago. Right. Um, but um, Dad loves jumping on a tractor, so <laughs> and helping out. Um, and uh, so um, you know they're, they're great just to have a chat to, and they understand what I'm talking about because they've done it for you know for 20 years. So mm-hmm. um, any advice from them is great as well. Um, so um, are you making any wine from the Macedon Vineyard? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have my own label. Um, Sal and I released it November last year. Um, it was the old Portree Vineyard. Um, that Ken and Lee Murchison planted in 1982. Um, so it's one good, of the oldest. Good vintage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you bet. <laughs> um, it was one of the oldest vine- uh, old, oldest vineyards in the in the region. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, so we um, had our first vintage was 2015, and I've been selling most of the fruit, and we um, had uh, we have three barrels of Pinot and and five of Chardonnay. So um and we've released it under a new label called Willamy, mm-hmm. um because we have an Aboriginal quarry next door to us. Uh, it's a, one of the oldest in in the country. It's fifteen hundred years old and it's a heritage listed quarry. Oh, yeah. And the quarry the Aboriginal called it um, Willamy Mooring, meaning place of tomahawk or, or stone axe. Yep. So um we wanted to bring the name back to our locality 
so hence we've renamed it Willamy. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. So um, uh, so I've only had one year of of uh, of, um, of sales, and the, and the sixteen vintage will um, be released um, in a month's time. All right, and yeah, people are able to buy that uh, directly, or there's some retail partners. Um, uh, mostly directly on our website. Um, uh, we don't have much volume, so um, there's a couple of wine shops that have been great supporters in Melbourne: um, Black Hearts and Sparrows and Smalls Wine Bar. Um, so they've been fantastic. We removed um, a former guest of the podcast. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, well, actually, one, one of the original guests of the podcast, but um, yep. recent guests of the podcast, John Harris, talked about um, uh, oh, right. the, the fruit for Sabre for for, mm. for their, the Mitchell Harris sparkling wines, which I'm, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, well, that, well uh, yeah, John has been on board for a couple of years. So he's been buying fruit from us for sparkling. Yeah, um, and uh, I, but he was getting fruit from. Um, our vineyard when he worked at Domaine Chandon, I believe. Exactly. So like That's what he talked about. Before. Okay. Was, so, yeah. But that was the first vineyard that uh, he bought from when they were studying Mitchell Harris. Ah, oh, there you go. Oh. The, the first vintage of Sabre. Yeah, right. Oh, gotcha. Well, well, he's back on board and has been for the last uh, three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I sell, sell a few few tons of fruit to him and um, also to Josh uh, Cooper. Yep. And, Former uh, guest of the podcast. Oh, there you go. That's good. And Matt Harriff. So, um, not yeah. a future guest, hopefully. <laughs> so that those those three guys have been fantastic. Um, good people to deal with and all with outstanding and, winemakers. Yeah, so. and that's the other great thing too is that um, sharing that information with those guys as well. And obviously, we've all got the same fruit. And actually, we get up. I'll get them up uh, next month actually for lunch, and we'll all have our barrel samples of Chardonnay. Yep. And the previous vintage, and we'll all come up for lunch and. And have a chat about um, each other's wines. And yeah, great. They're all they will be all very different, um, and so it's amazing the differences of what you know winemakers can do with the same fruit. And and very much uh, taking you back to that original European vintage in terms of Burgundy, working with Pinot yeah, and yeah, Chardonnay, and yeah. cooler climate. So that must be exciting uh, having that sort of right. little project for yourself, and then taking Galley, you know, into mm. the future and, and and trying different things, and and again having that contact with uh, with. Uh, the people who are working with the wines mm. uh, in terms of the, the Lorenzo Galli Scholarship. So yeah. it, it looks like you've got uh, lots and lots of really awesome projects you're working on and uh, it has been great chatting with you and finding a bit more about your background. So thank you very Excellent. much. Uh, as far as um, social media accounts for uh, and, and websites for, mm. uh, for Galley and for uh, Willoughby? Yeah, um, uh, all the usual channels with um, with Galley. Uh, obviously, our website www.galleyestate.com.au. Um, we're also uh, on Twitter. It's actually under my name, Ben underscore Rankin. Mm-hmm. Um, so on my Twitter, I represent Galley. Um, and uh, then with respect to um, Willamy, we have our own website, which is willamy.com.au. Sorry, say again, willamywines.com.au. Um, and uh, and then obviously Instagram, uh, Willamy Wines as well, Willamy underscore Wines. Awesome. Um, so and Facebook for Willamy, but my wife does that, so um, uh, she's far <laughs> better than me. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to following uh, everything that you're doing, and uh, it's been great catching up. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and you can follow me on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter, at The Vincast. 
head to my YouTube channel, uh, which is uh, Intrepid Wino, uh, one word. Uh, check out some of the Let's Taste videos, including a couple of uh, new Gallia State wine tasting videos. Uh, and there's also uh, you can check out my uh, my series chronicling my winemaking experiences and some other stuff as well. Uh, subscribe, make sure to leave a comment, like and share the videos if you can. Uh, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, uh, Podbean, uh, iHeartRadio. I think it's going to be on um, Spotify soon. Uh, subscribing to the podcast means you can get the episodes as soon as they become available and you can access the entire back catalogue uh, going all the way back to episode one. So uh, Subscribing also helps to, to grow the podcast, as does leaving a rating and a review. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, come and visit me at intrepidwino.com lots of content there as well as ways of getting in contact with me and do check out um, how to get tickets to the Bincast Live uh, episode on 5th of December uh, if you can't join us there will be a live streaming option so pr- prepare some questions for uh, myself and the guests but uh, hopefully I'll get to see you in person but until then bye Melbourne's Podcast Network. EarbudsNetwork.com